The Utah Open Source Foundation brings the Utah Lugs home. Feel free to listen live at stream.utos.org or catch the audio afterward at podcast.utos.org. The bandwidth is provided by Tier 4. The following presentation, using GPS on Linux with GPS Babel, GPIC Sync, and Google Earth, was given on January 21, 2009 by Mark Christensen at the Salt Lake Linux Users Group. Visit their site at slug.org. There's, there's three tools that I want to talk about tonight. Uh, one is called GPS Babel, and the other one is GPIC Sync, and the other one is Google Earth. And most of you are familiar with Google Earth. Uh, it's this program here. It allows you to um, in, investigate and learn about the world around you. And it's just one of the funnest programs I've ever found on Linux. And uh, with 3D... You can zoom right in, and we're right around here somewhere. And with 3D, you get the um, the terrain, the 3D terrain. Um, if you turn on 3D buildings, you can get those two. it decides to download them. Oh, yeah, a lot of these buildings, well, uh, there's a few buildings that have been modeled in 3D downtown. I think this is supposed to be one of them. Yeah. Anyway, it's not downloading the 3D data, but that's cool. It's not the point. Um, so the one of the new features in the latest Google Earth for Linux is that it'll import a GPX file. And uh, so I actually had my, my GPS running all the way down here from, I live in Utah County, and I took a few pictures along the way. Now, unfortunately, I didn't bring my card reader, the one that I need for this camera. And, uh, and so we're not, not going to be able to use this data. Um, let's see. But I brought my GPS, and we can look at <clears throat> at how to get data off the GPS. Now, this is the GPS I have, and there are several brands and manufacturers and models out there. The, there are several features that I like about this one. This is a, a Garmin Vista HCX. It's a high-sensitivity receiver. So it doesn't really have to be out in plain view of the sky like this to get a good reading. I take this with me skiing all the time. And uh, I just put it in my backpack. And it's, it's at the top of the backpack, but it tracks where I go all day through the whole, the whole day, all the, all the runs that I do when I'm, when I'm snowboarding. And uh, let me see if I can pull one of those up here. Now, I have a Facebook account. I have some photos on there.
I think that's the account I used. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so here's a, a day at Solitude. Here's a day at Park City. It's yellow, so it's not as easy to see. Um, here's a, day, a couple days at Sundance. This one's easier to see because the line is dark. But it's everywhere I went that day at Sundance. Um, and it's pulled into Google Earth. So this is just a GPX file that's been pulled in straight to Google Earth. So let's see if we can do that with this GPS here. So one of the nice things I like about this GPS is that uh, it, it has support for a micro SD card in its battery compartment, and with a setting that you can that you set says not only do I want you to store it in your native format on the GPS. But I also want you to store my track in a GPX format on the card. And it's an open format. Uh, GPX is an open standard. Okay, so there's the logs for every day that I've had my GPS turned on. And we can take today's, just drop it out here. Now there's actually a problem with um, with the GPX format that Garmin writes to their card. For some reason, Google Earth won't import it directly. So that brings us to our first tool that we're going to be using to analyze this this track. Now, if I go to Google Earth here and file um, open. GPX, and we see that right there. I click open. Oh, maybe, you know, it might have opened it up. Let's see. It did. Okay, so um, maybe in the latest version they fixed it. Okay, so what I've had to do in the past is that uh, 
Google Earth wouldn't open up this, this file format. There was some inconsistency with the standard, or maybe it wasn't pure XML or something like that. So uh, GPS Babel will talk directly to GPSs and uh, transmit data from the GPS, uh, or it'll take any type of most GPS format, native format files, and convert them to any other format. So if you have, say, uh, a KMZ file or KML file from Google Earth, but you want to use it in your map source program from Garmin or in Topo uh, from National Geographic or something like that, you can convert between the, the formats. Um, you can do really cool things like change the line width, the color, um, whether the line is clamped to the ground or, or elevated off the ground. I have a friend that's a pilot, and he goes flying, and when he un imports his track into Google Earth, it's clamped to the ground, when in reality he was at 2,000 feet or so. So he can, he can elevate the track and say, show it to me above the Earth and where, where I was actually flying. Uh, you can actually do that here um, manually. You can uh, right-click on, oh, wait, you can go over here, and properties, and then you can say altitude. You can set it here as well. And... If you look here, it's actually elevated off the ground, and you can change that to whatever you want. But as I was driving, I was pretty much clamped to the ground. Yeah. Okay, so this is the track that I, I took getting down here. From right where I live, here in Orem, drove down I-15 around Point of the Mountain, around I-215, around here to the U. And what I really wanted to do was take this other program and create a KMZ file for you that would match up the, the track that I just did with the pictures that I took, but I don't have a card reader. So I don't know if anybody came in late, if you have a XD, XD card reader. Oh. Let's run the best by real quick. Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. Um, I've actually got a data set already uh, that I created with a friend um, last year when we were skiing up at Sundance. And it contains pictures as well as uh, the track log and everything like that. So we can go play with that. XD, is that the really small one? Yeah, uh, from Panasonic, or Olympus makes them. There's, there's, yeah, there's SD, which is the micro SD. And, yeah, the, yeah. The micro SD, this, is, this, this is different, yeah. And I actually have a multi you know, format card reader, but it's at home. So not going to help us out today. Okay, I think this is all transferred. Okay, great. So in here we have the... Uh, actually, I wonder if the... Hmm. doesn't look like the original... Oh, there it is. So let me get that.
So when it says, uh, oh, so there's two in here. There's there's the original one, and then it should be getting the the processed one as well. Okay, so the processed one is basically the converted version, the one that I knew would work in in uh, Google Earth. So let's go ahead and take a look at that. Can everybody see it? Okay. So now you can see everywhere that me and my friend went. Well, what if you had like two different GPS data, like you went both on snowboarding and then one you went different paths and that sort of thing? Mm -hmm. Could you do like import both of the data on the same map and then colorize them? Well, okay, so the way that the, the tool works, it only takes one GPX file as an argument. Uh, but it's it's valid XML data, right? So you could put both of them together. Well, the thing is that it defines two different paths, right? And so there's a way um, there's a way to have multiple paths in a GPX file, but I believe yeah, I hmm. Because I believe that you can take a, a, a map that has multiple paths on it, multiple tracks, and save it out as a single GPX file. So there's got to be a way to have two more than one GPX file in there. Uh, the only ones that I'm familiar with are coming from a single GPS, and they're all sequential in, in time, and so there's no overlap. But you would be dealing with timestamps that were similar. So you couldn't just merge the two uh, because it would have it would go by date, and it wouldn't know the difference between the two um, data points. <clears throat> okay, so let's take this and we'll use our, we'll take this track and we'll take uh, the photos that I have and create a KMZ file, which is Google Map and Google Earth native file format. Well, I'll show you quickly what uh, GPS Babel can do by just looking at the help. So uh, you have your in-file type, out-file type, and filters. And as far as filters, here's the formats that it'll take. It'll take, um, these are all the different types of formats that it convert to and from. It'll, it'll go either way on all of these. Um, so it has CSV. Um, let's see, there's a Palm OS native format, it looks like. Uh, XMAP. Um, Easy GPS, which is a free GPS um, waypoint management tool. Um, it'll do the LOC files from geocaching.org or geocaching.com. Um, MapSource, which is Garmin's program. It'll also talk Garmin 
uh, protocol directly to talk to Garmin GPSs. It'll talk directly to um, uh, Magellan GPSs and so on. It's, you can see it's fairly extensive in what it can do. But you can also do other filters, like say, I want out of all this data in this GPX file, I want all points within a certain radius or outside of a certain radius or within a certain time range, before this and after this or, you know, so, uh, so on. You can do a lot of um, manipulation of them, of the data points. Uh, uses Google, let's see, GPS Drive, which is the open source um, GPS navigation. Um, GPX, which is the open source or the, the open format for GPS exchange. So there's all, all these different uh, formats of data that you can exchange between. It's really helpful. Uh, so if you're ever in a bind and you have a, a data set from a GPS or some mapping program, most likely you can you can use this program to change it into something you can use. There's also there's been a GUI for this a long time for Windows and just recently with the latest release, there's also a GUI for for uh, Linux now. Okay. So the tool that I want to use here is called gpixsync. There's a, there's a GUI and a command line version of this. And I actually packaged this up and put it in the OpenSUSE build service, and it's available for a bunch of different operating systems. Uh, I can't remember which ones it's actually building correctly on, but it's just a Python file. It doesn't really need compiling, and so more or less it's, you know, adhere. Yeah, you have to set up the dependencies that the RPM needs for each different distro because sometimes they have different package names and then file locations may be different uh, amongst the different uh, distros and so. Um, so go search for it in the OpenSUSE build service. There's an RPM. It's old and there's a couple bugs logged against it that I need to fix, mostly with file locations and things like that. But for the most, thing, most part, it's going to work. So we can choose the picture folder that we want to work with. It looks like it's defaulting to where we are right now, so we can select OK for that. And the GPX file, we're going to choose that one. Um, and icons, we want a picture thumbnail. We want the elevation to be clamped to the ground. And what it says with timestamp, that's OK. And then the Google Earth's export fo folder, let's make this. Um, you know, I can't remember if this is relative to the other one, but I think it is. So we'll just put in um, Google Earth. Now, if you click interpolation or interpol, if, you, if your GPS track has um, a long time between two points and a picture appears with a timestamp in between those points, this will interpolate and find out, well, you know, looking at your data here, you probably would have been in this location. It'll help you locate your pictures a little bit closer where they should have been um, if there's a big discrepancy. Backup pictures, add geonames and geotags. I've never done that before, but it, it'll add it into the HTML um, metadata, or it might put it in a picture, in, in with the picture of the HTML stuff. Now, um, if you were out taking pictures, and you, then you get home and you say, oh, man, I didn't change my GPS or my camera for the, <laughs> for the time change or something like that. And you're an hour off or something. You can go in here and say, I was actually 55 minutes off or I was you know, 30 minutes off. So adjust that uh, when you're syncing up pictures. 
Um, okay, so let's see if I can't remember if I had to save settings first or not, but we'll see. Let's see. Didn't geocode. And I might have been off, so we can try. Oh, you know what? I might have to actually. It might be UTC versus, so let's say. Um, What's uh, seven hours in, sec in seconds? Well, let's let's see if it'll do it by hours first. Um, no, it's not going to do it. So, what was it again? Okay, so it's found a picture and it's geotagging it now. So, yeah. Okay, so. Uh, oh. Yeah. Well, it needs to know. It needs to know where you were. So it needs to take. Um, the timestamp of the photo and match it up with the closest timestamp time in the trail, in, in okay. the GPS track. And if they're off, it's not going to match up. So it's hanging here, and I don't know why. And it could be that um, I don't have the time right. Um, either way, it's... Uh, it works. It's just that I, I don't have the settings here. But luckily, I think that um, when I transferred the data set, I actually had already done this once. So we can take a look at what we've got here. Yeah, OK. So here's a, uh, let's see. I hope it didn't override it. It might have. Yeah. Let me copy the um, Okay, so what this does is it gives you two documents when it when it's done syncing this up. Uh, it will mark all of your photos with the right time or, or put all the locations uh, from the track into the photos for you. And it'll put them into a directory. I believe it's into thumbs. It might be actually in, in here. Um, yeah, and it'll back up the originals into a separate directory for you. So it'll, it'll modify the metadata and put the GPS location in each photo for you. And it'll create these two files, 
doc.kml and docweb.kml, and they're two different files. The doc.kml can be used directly on Google Earth, and the docweb can be placed on a, on a server. So what you want to do is um, you take this whole directory as is and zip it up or for your friends on Windows or tar it up for your friends on Linux and just send it to them or you know, place it on a web server and say, hey, grab this file, unzip it or untar it, and then you know, open this file up in Google Earth. Okay. Um, or you can also do something like this. And create an index file, and what you do is um, you you take your your doc-web.kml file and all the graphics and all the thumbs, this thumb directory as is, uh, tar it up and put that onto a web server and untar it. So it's out there in a directory, and then what you can do is is take this and the URL to the doc.kml file out there on the web and put that into Google Earth as an argument for Google Earth in the location area. And Google Earth, uh, well, let's pull that, or not, I'm not, sorry, not Google Earth, but uh, Google Maps. So let me find out where this is first. Okay, so this is this is that directory we were just looking at my local on my local machine, but on my web server. And you'll see here that it contains the index.html and the docweb and doc.kml. And if we take this URL here to this docweb, which is in this directory here, Now, Google Earth actually goes out and retrieves this KML file from my server and creates a mashup for you. So now you can see my track, which is, in, which is contained inside the KML file. And if we zoom in here, you see that when I created it, before we were using the GUI, I said use the icon, the pictures for the icon. This example here is using the little camera icon instead of a thumbnail for the icon. But now I can click on each of these, and it'll actually open up the picture. Now I've noticed that um, first time you open it up, the, it doesn't really draw the, the box very well. But now you can see that picture was taken at exactly that spot. I did. So what happens is when you turn off your GPS 
and then drive to another location, turn it back on, it creates a new data point. Well, the next one was you know a straight line 50 miles away or whatever. So you can see here, here we are in Bishop's Bowl, um, and here we are up at the up at Bear Claw Cabin, I believe, looking down on Provo Valley. And here's some other friends that we were with. And if you click on the actual picture, it will then fetch the actual, the full-size one for you in a different, in a different uh, browser window. And there I am with my sweaty hair after having boarded most of the day. You know, for some reason, it doesn't cache the, the decorations right, and so it has, you, know, you have to click on a couple times before you get the decorations to show up right. Um, so anyway, that's what you can do with the KML file. You can also, so this is how you can do the use the doc web one. You just upload it to a directory, and then you can point your friends to it and say, hey, here are our family vacation photos in Yellowstone. And you see everywhere you went in Yellowstone, and along the way, look at all the pictures you took. Um, if you open up the, the regular doc file, but in Google Earth, you get this here. So this is the one, this is just importing the GPX file. The difference is that when you um, open up the KML file, hmm. I wonder if we're going to have problems opening that up. We can open the doc one, the web one, and see if that works. Hmm. Well, I don't know why that's not working. Hmm? Um, it's relative to the directory that's in, so it shouldn't matter. Um, Yeah, uh, I copied the, that directory and all the lower ones intact. So it should open up, but it's not for some reason. It's kind of weird. And it could be that you know they were made for an older version of Google Earth, which is the case. Um, I think I made it with Google Earth like three something or other, and so it may not work. But Let's 
Let's see if this works. There we go. I hadn't. So when I recopied them from my server, I put them in my home directory instead of the actual one that I was trying to overwrite. Okay, so now we're in Google Earth looking at the same picture or, or the, the same track that we were before. In fact, let's turn off the other one. Turn those off. So now we've just got the, the one that we just loaded up fresh. Okay, so now we have uh, a much better representation of where we went. Um, with the 3D, you get a much better feel of what path we went on. And you can click on here, and you'll get a, a picture. It'll actually pull up the picture. I think, for some reason, it takes a lot longer when you do this. I think it's actually pulling up the full size one and then scaling it down. Over here? No, to the down, down, see the 19084 zigzag? 84 right here. Yeah, and so going down to, and to the left, and that looked like it went through the trees. I just wonder if you had that kind of a bit. Um, yeah, yeah, actually, we did. Uh, actually, this is actually supposed to be down here, I believe, right below those trees there. Well, you know what? I may have done that. Yeah, I did. I did. Um, this is right, right where the lift is. Right. No, but I was looking at the ones that, that kind of came down to the trees, and there's another one. If you rotate, uh, yeah, and then down that way, see that what comes over the shoulder of the mountain? Oh, right over here? Nope. Down, follow the 219084, down okay. to the left. It looks like it came down through the trees on the left side of the picture there. Oh, right down through here? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, this is another lift. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I didn't do this on this day, but right, um, let's see, right down through these trees right here is just awesome. Nobody really hits that area. It's usually four feet of powder on powder days all day long. Uh, so I usually hit this area right here. And um, right over here, so this is a, a run called Snow Stake. Right down through here, actually. Um, and right down through here in these trees is a hidden run that's not on the trail maps. It's yeah. called Regulator Manson. And you go down in there, and it actually has a trail sign on one of the trees, but it's not on any of the maps. It's kind of cool. Um, so, uh, and all of these right down here are all double blacks, and those are really fun on good snow days. They go down, uh, they get really steep down toward the bottom. Um, I think they go over 45 degrees. Most, like up here on the upper slope, this is all 45 degrees up here. Um, but just right down here before you drop into the chute, they, they go a lot steeper. So probably close to 50 degrees just before you drop in. And I really hate those runs on when it's hard packed or when it hasn't snowed for a while. But on a good 
two-foot powder day. Awesome. Just amazing. So anyway, um, that's basically what I wanted to talk tonight about. So um, I don't know if you guys have any questions or... Is there documentation on any of this stuff? Uh-huh. There's documentation uh, for Google Earth. It's um, They don't really talk about importing GPX files, but it's as simple as opening one up. Um, that works fine. GPS Babel has really good documentation uh, on its website. So we can just actually go to the website. <laughs> GPS Babel, um, and it has really good documentation right on its site somewhere. Docs, right there. Formats. Um, all these different formats are supported. There's a tips and tricks thing, too, I thought, somewhere around here. How oh, is it? Tips right there. So tips for geocachers. There's even a way to, like, set up a, a script or something that you can set up as a a MIME type for for your browser so that when you hit uh, an LSC file, download an LSC file from geocaching.com, you can add, automatically transfer it to your GPS and, and do some things like that. So it's pretty cool. Hey, Jim. Uh, let's see. Fact. It's a pretty pro powerful program. I'll talk to most GPSs out there in some format or another. Some of the newer GPSs, it may not, uh, or, the, or the specialized GPSs, it may not talk all the protocols. Like, for example, my, the Garmin that I use for my, vice, for my bike computer will do other things like heart rate. It'll record the heart rate and other things like that. And I think this actually does it, but newer GPSs that come out with features that are specialized for that, it may not include all the features for those. Like, there are specific GPSs just for aircraft usage. There's specific GPSs just for paragliding, hang gliding. There are specific GPSs that are just for fishing, and it may not handle all of the extra data sets or or whatever it may record for those things. But for the most part, I found it extremely usable and able to convert any data that I've had to use. Um, and, okay, so Google Earth is located at, at uh, earth.google.com. And it's closed source, but it's free, so you can just download it, install it. They have Windows, Mac, and Linux versions. Um, oh, the interesting thing to tie in with this with Google SketchUp is that Google SketchUp is the main modeling tool that they use to create the 3D objects that are in Google Earth. So if you're browsing around Google Earth and you see a 3D uh, building or bench or whatever has been modeled and placed somewhere in Google Earth. It was designed or, or built up using SketchUp. Or at least exported using SketchUp because they could have designed it in, I don't know, AutoCAD and imported the DXF file into SketchUp. 
um, and then GPixSync. GPixSync is the other um, program we were using. And I think I've got the most recent version in uh, that I built as an RPM in the OpenSUSE build service. But it still has some bugs and things that I need to, to work out as far as packaging goes. And maybe a patch or two that I need to apply to it. But this is what it'll do. Um, here's the interface that we were looking at. And it'll actually show you, say, show me my, my current um, files that I've tagged in, in Google Earth. And it'll actually pull up Google Earth for you. So here's what it looks like when it actually works. You can see here it says found image and writing latitude, longitude to the image, and so on. Um, and then here's what we were just looking at. So, any other questions? Cool. You know, we didn't talk about what was new in Linux. <laughs> so uh, we actually haven't met for a couple months. Actually, we had a we went to a talk in December, so I think the last time we actually met was in November. I think so. There's been a bit that's gone on. Anybody know? Uh, yeah. Palm well, Free was announced at CES. Oh, what was? The Palm Free. It's the new uh, replacement. Yeah. Now, is is that the Linux-based OS? Yeah, that's the one we've been waiting for. Forever. And and they were um, I guess there's been some a lot of excitement about it uh, over yeah, it. Yeah, their stock's up thirty five percent. Wow, that's cool. Um, it's I'm, in words. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, no, they uh, um, you don't read a lot about it, but it's uh, Linux under the hood, uh, but they call it web OS. And basically, the, the concept is that it's going to be all HTML um, technology, more or less. And basically, everything that somebody writes on the web these days using uh, uh, AJAX and, and some of those kinds of things uh, you know, should be very easy to port over to, to uh, web OS. I just yeah. They, Everybody else is doing they do. It's it's all kind of pre-release at this point in time. They had some prototypes that they put in the reporters' hands and very quickly took them back again. <laughs> but, uh, well, that tends to be more now. I mean, I was considering moving over to T-Mobile with the Google phone at that point. So, yeah. I'm a great customer, so that actually makes it easy for me to try it out. So. Well, when it actually hits, I mean, yeah. it, it's kind of in the realm of big order at this point, but it... it they have at least officially announced it, but it's going to be a sprint exclusive for a while. So right. they, they have, users uh, like me have to wait. They have me for seven months, and then uh, I can decide to go to like T-Mobile or whatever. So I, if it comes out between now and then, I might like just go to the Google phone and call it good because I can at least build some stuff on the SDK. They were saying something about it's uh, it's going to have support through multitasking, which the other. Um, smartphones like the Google phone and uh, Palm OS don't do right now yet. It'll support what? Uh, true multitasking as oh, far yeah. as apps That's and things, right? Oh, yeah. Um, I actually wrote down a few things. I, I perused Linux Weekly News. Oh, Alan Cox is leaving Red Hat. Intel. Intel, yeah. 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 Um, the 268, uh, 2628 kernel was released. 
and nobody's using, using it yet. But um, the one that I'm more excited about is the two six twenty nine kernel, which has the what is it? The stuff. yeah, yeah. It's a new file system. Well, not, yeah. I mean, they're there, but they don't work. Like, if Fedora 10 was the 2627 kernel, and it broke. Hmm. Like, I can't use it, and it pisses me off. Oh. So I'm excited about that one as well. There's also, um, what is it, uh, BTRFS support yeah, is in that new kernel? Yeah, I was at FUDCON a couple weeks ago, and they were talking about ButterFS and the transition between how they're going to use the HD4 as a transition point to mm-hmm. ButterFS. And it looks like it's going to be really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, AMD released uh, open source drivers for their ATI R600, R700 chipsets. Well, they, they've been um, closed source for a long time and, and holding back. Uh, the kernel developers love everybody to release everything open source. Yeah. We don't want They always have some reason Yeah. And I think that once AMD was, oh, yeah. Well, the nice thing is that you know, Nortor. The same problems I had with the laptop setting up for the Google SketchUp was that AMD drivers on Linux just haven't been very good. Um, I've always had problems with them, but I've I've had a lot fewer problems and had better success with NVIDIA. Um, And especially with 3D applications, NVIDIA's had better support for a long time. So maybe that'll change with uh, them opening sor- open sourcing that. Uh, Sco is uh, aiming to sell off its assets. <laughs> Apparently there isn't. I don't know. I just wonder if that's news. Uh, yeah, I don't think it is. <laughs> Do they still have any assets? They have their mobile division, but I mean, what did they ever do with that anyway? How do I buy in? Yeah. <laughs> Size from shares. <laughs> uh, let's see. Um, uh, Chrome 2.0 from Google is supposed to be released for Linux shortly. And I think they even came out with a deadline, but I don't know what it is. Uh, one of the biggest things that's happened within, I think, was last last week or the week before, is that QT has been announced that uh, version 4.5 will be released under LGPL. Yeah, so now there's no barriers at all. So the QT, I mean, you knew that the QT license and GPL, you couldn't link two, you know, two shared right. libraries, whatever, the browser. Right, license. without releasing your code as, as GPL as well. No, it's going to be from version 4.5 on. So with that release forward, it'll be LGPL. And one of the big reasons behind it, what they're saying, is that well, Nokia bought QT or Trolltech, and QT and Nokia is not a, a GUI company, right? They want to. They're more interested in getting that out as a standard and and getting it in wide use. And so they're doing away with, yeah, they're doing away with using QT as a business model and using it as a tool to deploy on. And RHEL 5.3 was just announced, I think, today or yesterday. Yeah. Rel, Rel fi, uh, Red Hat Enterprise Linux 5.3. Yeah. 
Right. Oh, cool. Yeah, that'll be really fun. Yeah. Oh, yeah? That's cool. Yeah, nice. It's uh, what's the 28th? And where's that located? Do you have any uh, details? Yeah, I got it. Uh, so, uh, Uh, slug or? I'm pretty sure they do. <laughs> Anything else new in Linux over the last while? Yeah, I I stopped by there because you know I'm trying to fix my home theater stuff. There you go. Um, nope. Uh, well, there wasn't a lot of good deals there yet, and the thing is that you know once firms like that when they go out of business they hire a clearance 
firm, right? And they usually don't really do a good job of marking down prices all day. They say 30 to 70 percent off, and you go in there and say, "Everything I don't want is 70 percent off." <laughs> What's up with that? <laughs> yeah. So everything everything that's trashy is a loss leader, and anything that's really wanted is normal price. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you PC Club is gone. Price would be awesome. If you're, if you're seriously interested in that, you want to go to their site and they have a comment form and request it. And the more that we can get to request it, then they'll have it. There's also a store called Micro Center, which is out in East Coast mostly, um, that I would love to have come here as well. So there's two options for that. Well, we just need somebody to buy a franchise. Yeah, yeah I, don't, I don't think that's going to be the case because they're both corporate. I think, yeah, fr- yeah. I, yeah, fries are all the corporate. Yeah. But, but we've got IKEA here, so we've got to have big enough, you know, yeah, there's no real. Yeah. You know, I went to, where was it? There's, uh, you know, EBC and Orem. I've never had really good luck with them. Their, you know, return policies are yeah, difficult. MAS computers, MAS computers is um, fairly pricey, but but they're decent. Yeah. No, well, USI computers is pretty good. They. It's on thirty. Third and There's a place where? Yeah, EBC. Um, I've not really had good luck with. I think they do have. Well, the, their return policies have always been bothersome. So. Um, yeah, the other thing with, with MOS computers or MAS computers is that you can buy anything you want there, but you can never get cash back. You can only get store credit. And that's been an issue with me, too, with them. I mean, I don't mind buying from them, but if something doesn't work I'd, or it's not going to be what I need, I want to be able to get my money back. Oh, yeah. Seagate. Yeah, that was the... Uh, there, there's a couple firmware uh, versions, uh, a few drive models that have bad firmware that 
you need to update your firmware if you want it to live. They die after a little while. What is it? Some Seagate drives that have bad firmware. But you can. I think so. Yeah. The solution to that is just by Western Digital. <laughs> that, Although that the, was what was argued on the, yeah. on the list. Although I, I have always been impressed I with mean, their with the Seagate so versions so that have the five year warranties that they seem to be pretty decent. Yeah. Um, well and there's other drivers that are good. Hitachi's got really good ones. Yeah. And the next team that is it Samsung? No, it's not Samsung, it's the other one. Toshiba? Yeah, that's yeah. a good speed hard drive too. So but they're a little more expensive usually. Well the Seagate issue is really not broad. No, there's only a few models. So I've heard that um, from lots of people. Like, there's uh, all their CD drives have problems. Like, they go, they're they're uh, out of warranty, and right after warranty, it's like they're. I think I think there's a business community that's like don't deal with it. Well, you know, I've never had problems with my Seagate drives, but I always buy the five-year warranty ones, and. Right. Um, yeah, I never get any. I never try to get anything less than that if I can. And uh, and then another big thing is cooling. I've had drives go bad that were that were in an, an enclosure uh, properly installed with a lot of room around them, but heat just kills drives. And so what I've done now is I've mounted. Um, I've taken the drive panels off of the front drives and replaced it with a plate of aluminum with two fans in there that I just mounted, drilled some holes and mounted them in there. And so. I check the drive temperature in there, never above 27, 28 degrees Celsius, instead of the 39 to 50 degrees that they were before. So, and that's helped my drives um, stay along, alive a lot longer. Is that a add on your cell phone? No, I'll uh, post yeah. some pictures. You can make it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Move Networks did too. About about the same amount. Yeah. So you know the tech industry but in Utah has been fairly good, but there are jobs out there. Um, I will attest to that because I've actually had two job offers in the last two months. Yeah. Um, and I'm starting a new job next in two weeks. So um, in fact, Daniel's my recruiter. So yeah. Nice. Now, are you aware of our our jobs list, our announced list? Uh, no, I'm not actually. Okay. Well, uh, you're welcome to post um, okay. Linux and open source related jobs to it, uh, and I'll I can give you the email address. Slug-jobs-announce at slug.org. No, we have a separate list for. Um, mailings for jobs, and it's you know fairly active. Um, Smith Johnson posts jobs there, and a few others. Yeah, and I think it's because of cost. Companies are looking to say, what can we do that'll save us money and licensing fees or whatever. And, and Linux and open source tends to be a good answer for a lot of that. Yeah. Uh, 
I'm a lot it's less expensive apparently than the contractor. And so if I need to do that, so like, cool. all right, I work. Yeah. I guess the trick is to become the contractor. Well, yeah, the contractor part is good, like where you make a lot of money, but you have to work for it. So. And if you don't, like, because the contractor guy said he had tons of work and he's like, I have so much work I can't keep up, so it's okay. So Daniel, do you do mostly tech related? Yeah, if you want to bring them up here, we can just have people grab them after the you meeting. Like, uh, <laughs> Wrap yeah, them off. The um, yeah, especially in the economy coming up, uh, there may be a few of us looking for jobs. Yeah, that's so, uh, at some point. <laughs> we can just put them up here. Yeah, there's uh, Universal Systems on 33rd. They have moved. They moved down the street. Well, and what? Uh, it's just up from 7th, isn't it? It's um, yeah, somewhere between 7th and State. I'm not sure. Or just up from 9th. They might be just up from 9th. Anyway, yeah, it's a smaller building, but, well, oh, it's a less height one. It, how it's long ago they moved? About a year, Last I think. Fall, yeah. Oh, okay. I didn't ever see any announcements. They usually have pretty good prices. Um, they actually sponsored Slug for years and years and years by hosting our web our web server for over a decade, I think. And they're, they're just really good guys. They uh, helped build the clusters up here at the U, supplied most of the hardware for a lot of the clusters here. And, yeah. And they're really good for service, too. It's been my experience, at least. Question. Yeah. <coughs> Anything new happening with Utopia, or is it dead? Well, it's still going on. I, I mean, well, I, I don't see him talking it'll, about it. But any hope it'll ever uh, expand anymore? I don't know. Is the rest of what's out there is just junk? Yeah. Most of the cities don't want to underwrite it. A lot of, anybody that's not already into it is not going to underwrite it. They're, they're going to yeah. break it. Utopia's going to... Yeah. Especially with the economy the way it is. They probably well, they won't. Got, they sorry. got talked out of taking part in it in the first place by outfits like Quest and so forth that thought they were going to come in and cut a big fat hog and uh, quite frankly you know I can't get high speed Quest I can't get an awful lot of stuff at my place mm. Sprint broadband sucks Then so you have the Sprint microwave broadband or? I used to have the Sprint microwave broadband until they lost the band it doesn't uh, exist anymore so now I've got this stupid little modem thing that on uh, a good day, I can get about 40 kilobytes per second. Hmm. I go to uh, Utah Broadband uh, as a replacement for Sprint when they pulled out, and uh, it's it seems to be pretty comparable. Microwave again. Utah uh, Broadband? Yeah, Utah Broadband. Uh, now, they, they were actually acquired by somebody else, and I can't remember the name of the top of my head, but if you do a Google on, on Utah Broadband, it'll turn out. Is it Radioverse? Apparently, there was a hack released recently for BlackBerry. Um, if you have a BlackBerry device on Verizon or some other provider, 
Uh, you can actually use it as a modem for. Yeah. 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 So you could, you know, hijack your unlimited data plan and. When, when did that happen? Just recently? Uh, it happened in December. Oh, it, yeah, it so happened. That came out today. Yeah, I think I just read that. Okay. Yeah, it so makes, so makes so you wonder. Yeah. Yeah, let's see. Does, does anybody have any experience with Linksys G3 routers? G3 routers? Uh, they see, work pretty well, but I've used quite a few of them. Oh, the segment I've got uh, basically gives up the ghost. What a shame. What they do from the so it turns out they, they were playing with an open source software. I can't remember if it was Drupal or something. It turns out that somebody had programmed in an iframe that had something else in it, and that was what actually got them access to the server. So it wasn't, it wasn't the open source CMS that did it, but they had to like retract the statement and apologize. Mark, I think that business was to have something about Seagate on um, it. Science well, they Tech did. So you can take all the porn off of it. On Maine and they've got a lot of my money over the years. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's just a fun thing to play with. It is. So if you're if you want an expert yeah. in this kind of stuff, he's, he's the best, you know, sales person, helpful person. The funny thing is, that, you know, so uh, my home audio system is in a full height rack mount. I said, well, I've got a rack mount. I've got to get rack mount components. <laughs> so, I mean, come on. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. <laughs> I have a picture of my server somewhere. It's pretty funny. Make sure you GPS tag it for us and put it up on the Yeah. 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I got a full height rack for a hundred bucks here. So it was a nice, nice deal. Well, let's go ahead and have the drawing. Um, there, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, and and the U when they had their medical records hacked, they they contacted people too, but. Some companies are such weasels. I mean, they don't do the morally right thing just because they don't have to. Well, uh, okay, so the, the giveaway is a boxed edition of 11.1. And uh, then we also have the non-boxed versions that you can just come up and take. And we have Fedora Core. Wait, wait. Core 10. They don't call it Core anymore. Just Fedora 10? Yeah. Um, here also. So we have about 15 or 20 of each of these. So you can come up and grab one. Um, we won't draw for those. But we'll only draw for these, for this one. So uh, since we only have, well... We're gonna, I have two, but we're going to save the next one for next month. So so we have something to give away. Yeah, we're going to give one away this month. So one lucky person will walk away with the box edition. Um, this contains the manuals and the DVD for all architectures and um, the, uh, the non-open source um, software as well. So it's a pretty good deal. Um, anyway, it, has anybody played with 11.1 yet? It's pretty cool. We've been playing with it here tonight, but looks like every other distro. You know, I'm not sure. It may. 233. 233. Ah, that would be me. Really? Yeah. All right. I was like, well, I'm going to try it out anyway, so that's a perfect chance. There you go. And everybody else can just come up and get a DVD anyway. So, uh, so that's it? Yep, that's the, it. The van is done? The van, yeah, it's done. Thanks, Vanna. So um, I'm going to grab one of the Fedora ones so I can play with it. Yeah, it's the live CD that you try out. Okay. So there's... Come up and get a card from... De Thank you for listening to Hacker Public Radio. HPR is sponsored by caro.net, so head on over to caro.net for all your hosting needs.